0: Welcome to episode 95 of the G2 on 5G. It's the latest Insight Scoop on everything 5G. We cover six topics in about 20 minutes, and it's brought to you by more insights and strategy. I'm Will Townsend, and joining me again this week is federal analyst Anshul Saad. Let's get started with my first topic. In this week, news broke that Verizon, um, their investment arm, which is uh, Verizon Ventures, has taken a 9.9% stake in CASA systems. If you're not familiar with CASA systems, they supply 5G core network function systems and they're gonna be an integral part of Verizon's Mobile Edge Compute MEX service. And so on the surface, this feels a lot like a Rakuten's playbook with, you know, with respect to how they developed Symphony and now they're developing capabilities to support you know, other operators. This is certainly for Verizon only But it's no secret that Verizon's been investing heavily in mobile edge compute. They've been partnered with AWS for the most part. And so this doesn't come as a surprise to me and possibly Verizon Ventures is betting on their long-term viability. I did a little bit of research into CASA before the podcast. They've traditionally been in the cable business, but obviously with cord cutting and that sort of thing, they've been shifting their focus into mobility they still state that cable will be strategic long-term, but that part of their market is shrinking. So wise on CASA's part and certainly wise on uh, Verizon's part, but do you have any thoughts?
1: Yeah, I was gonna say that um, it's interesting because they 10% is a pretty considerable stake. Right. Um, that also values CASA systems at almost $500 million. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have a feeling that um, if Verizon continues to grow their, their share of uh, CASA systems, they could actually become very close to a majority short, majority shareholder uh, very quickly if uh, they see CASA systems as an integral part of their edge strategy and they don't want any of their competitors to have access to that. So yeah, um, yeah. it'll be interesting to see how this relationship works out long-term and and how much they leverage CASA systems uh, technologies to uh, scale.
0: You know, and I did uh, discover some additional information as well that Casa has not registered a major win with a mobile network operator. So uh, it's interesting, but certainly now they can say that they've got one with Verizon and the domino effect may occur after. But with that, let's move to your first topic this week. And you want to talk about T-Mobile.
1: Yeah, so... This is a um, kind of an update on what's going on with network speeds in the U.S. uh, among mobile operators, Uh, and this was a uh, speed test intelligence report, um, which kind of goes in and and takes a lot of um, points of data and analyzes, um, you know, all three carriers in terms of speeds, um, performance and coverage and those kinds of things. and. Mm -hmm. The thing that was really interesting is, one, that when you look at um, median download speeds, T-Mobile is getting 117 megabits per second, while Verizon is getting 62 and AT&T is getting 56. So they're almost double the next carrier, Mm -hmm. which is astonishing, considering that Verizon is supposedly catching up to them with their their mid-band network, which I don't think they are. I think they're narrowing the gap, but I think it's a long road for them. And then if you just look at 5G performance, um, T-Mobile is pulling down almost 200 megabits median download Mm -hmm. in Q1, while Verizon's doing 107 and AT&T is getting 68. That said, uh, I think we're very much uh, at the beginning of Verizon and AT&T's mid-band deployments. And I do expect that these numbers will considerably improve for both AT&T and Verizon mm-hmm. over the course of the next year, um, even in the next six months. But I do believe that they're going to struggle to keep up with T-Mobile because what eventually is going to happen is T-Mobile is going to have nearly 300 million pops. And once mm-hmm. they have that kind of coverage with their mid-band, it's going to be very difficult to compete with that because everywhere they go, they're going to be serving three to 400 megabits at the minimum. And right. they you know, I've seen as upwards of a gig and I've seen it upwards of a gig in more than one place, which when you're pulling down a gig uh, without millimeter wave, it's a pretty big deal. So mm-hmm. um, it's just them continuing to absolutely crush on that mid-band network. In it. And it really shows that the acquisition of Sprint was such a, a big deal to them. And obviously the execution, right? They just executed this uh, flawlessly. And um, they are, they're actually on pace to acquire more two and a half gigahertz spectrum fairly soon in July, uh, which might even further improve these average and median speeds.
0: Yeah, that's that's based on the uh, auction that was announced by the FCC chairwoman over uh, the Mobile World Congress uh, event. So yeah, yeah. and we talked about midband before. You know, you and I were you know just a very select. Uh, group of analysts that, you know, predicted that that merger would come together eventually, it was very hard fought. And certainly that mid band spectrum was the prize and we've talked about that in the past on our podcast. Mid band just gives you that perfect balance of propagation and performance. And to your point, Neville and john and team at T mobile have been executing flawlessly I mean I think it's a good description that you use there so that will that that will you know that lead will close over time, but um, you know, and I, I certainly think AT and T will be fast on the heels of T Mobile with uh, they've got a more diverse sort of mid midband um, spectrum footprint with uh, that you know that auction one ten um, as well as C band. So we'll keep an eye on it and we'll report back. I'm just going to
1: the- add one more thing. Yep. Yeah. What's yeah. interesting is latency is still roughly the same across all three carriers. Interesting. Where T-Mobile's getting 31 and Verizon's getting 31, while AT&T has 34. Mm-hmm. And I think the big factor there is a lack of standalone in mid-band. Mm-hmm. And I think once we see standalone roll out nationwide um, and, in, and in the mid-band, I think we'll see that come down considerably.
0: Yeah, good point. Well, let's move to my second topic this week. And I wanna talk about General Motors and they are partnering with Cisco to leverage Cisco's wireless backhaul for vehicle testing. And this is pretty interesting. I dug into it and it's actually Cisco brands their ultra reliable wireless backhaul. And what GM plans to do as they are developing vehicles and they're testing them on tracks is that they're gonna leverage Cisco's uh, wireless backhaul to in real time capture data from vehicle sensors, and they believe this is going to help shorten test cycles and ultimately improve uh, time to market with respect to bringing new cars um, into the markets. And so, um, you know, and, and this is pretty compelling from my perspective, because fiber isn't everywhere, although it, it is, you know, when you look at what at and is doing, it is, it is proliferating pretty quickly, but there are going to be areas where fiber just isn't there. Microwave is not going to you know, cut the, you know, the mustard in a lot of these applications. So I just think this is a fantastic sort of highlight. It really demonstrates Cisco's capabilities within their mass scale infrastructure group. And what I also read in the news was this is part of an acquisition that Cisco made in in fluid mesh networks. And this technology is already being used today in ports, mines and railways. And I've also talked about how those are perfect use cases for private 5G, but what are your thoughts?
1: I think it's a very interesting technology. I think having wireless backhaul um, for vehicle to, in this case, trackside connectivity will, I think, hopefully have the automotive manufacturers think more about um, how they operate with a smart, with you know, infrastructure in place and how they can design a vehicle to have the kind of communications that might be necessary both in testing and in use yeah, um, to yeah. make a vehicle more prepared for a more V2X like environment in the world. Um, one of my favorite things is this is called um, C-U-R-W-B, which almost sounds like a three-year-old trying to pronounce the word curb, um, <laughs> which I think is kind of funny. Yeah. Um, but other than that, I, I, I do think it's a very compelling technology. And I'm glad to see that there's um, enough Uh, wireless technologies out there to help accelerate the development cycles of automotive vehicles, as well as in general, you know, potentially create opportunities in the infrastructure side.
0: You know, it's compelling to see these uh, well-established automobile manufacturers embracing technology. We've talked about Ford in the past and their plans to deploy 5G, to do a lot of uh, automation and that sort of thing. And here's GM leveraging, you know, a, a very capable backhaul solution to try to shorten development time. So it's uh, sometimes these uh, these automobile manufacturers in Detroit are sort of old school and they don't embrace technology quickly, but certainly GM and Ford are demonstrating otherwise. But let's move to your second topic this week. And you wanna talk about OpenRF and some expected plans for devices.
1: Yeah, so this comes from a uh, report in light reading from uh, a friend of ours, Mike Cano. Yep. And uh, this was a report around uh, open RF Association which was established a couple of years ago um, and they're saying that uh, there are going to be devices that run on open RF standard um, by the end of this year um, mm-hmm. and what's interesting is um, the executive who's quoted is actually a Corvo uh, executive and when I saw the open RF um, you know, organization created. My, my gut reaction was that this is a, a joint effort to create some way to deploy millimeter wave mm-hmm. uh, in a way that can um, share the resources across different organizations. Um, so that millimeter wave can be deployed cost effectively uh, outside of the Qualcomm infrastructure. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, because
1: ultimately right now, if you're building millimeter wave, unless you're Apple or Qualcomm, um, you're gonna need some kind of module for millimeter wave. And if you look at pretty much every millimeter wave deployment to this day, um, other than the Google um, and Apple, Qualcomm pretty much owns the majority of the millimeter wave market. And I have a feeling that this is going to be uh, how uh, other parties deploy millimeter wave. Um, Because if you look at like what's going on in in the market today, a lot of these companies already have 5G solutions, uh, be they Corvo or Skyworks. Yeah. Um, and, and the reality is if you look at the OpenRF um, organization, it's Broadcom, Intel, MediaTek, Murata, Corvo, and Samsung. Right. Qualcomm is not present, um, which makes sense to me because I feel like this, the entire purpose of the OpenRF uh, organization is as a foil to Qualcomm. But I think, um, to me, it makes the most sense that uh, MediaTek is kind of the 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 power behind this in the sense that they have the modems um, and they're willing to make their modems open to this organization to enable different types of RF frontends to give OEMs more choice. Um, But ultimately, I think they're trying to recreate possibly some of the deep integrations that Qualcomm has from their RF front end to their modem, which are very difficult to reproduce unless you have something of OpenRF established. So I see OpenRF as a competitive um, foil to what Qualcomm is doing with their RF360 from their RF to modem system that they call it. Um, And I think that uh, it'll be interesting to see what those products look like and how they perform in terms of RF signal, power, and performance. So it, it, we'll see what, what happens at the end of the year, I but I have a strong feeling it'll be a media tech-based uh, solution with um, who knows what front end.
0: Yeah, you know, and your insights are spot on. RF is a huge business unit for Qualcomm, right? And so it wouldn't make sense for them to participate in this because it has the potential to chip away at uh, what they've enjoyed from a market share perspective. But I, I've stated this you know, many times on podcasts, competition breeds innovation. I, I absolutely agree with you as well. I think we will see something for MediaTek out of the gate on this. They are sort of, if you want to call them, sort of the value play to Qualcomm. They have traditionally have been positioned there. But uh, you and I will actually be attending a MediaTek Analyst Forum uh, in early May, and we may actually uh, learn some, some things that we'll bring back to a future podcast, but... I think yeah. you're spot on there.
1: I was, I was also going to add that there, I think MediaTek is also trying to expand with, with their flagship SOCs into the higher tiers, and we may or may not be working on a uh, special podcast from from that, uh, that event, so we'll see.
0: Yeah, we'll see. Cool. Well, let's hit my third and final topic this week, and in the news... Huawei apparently is winning 5G and cloud deals in the UAE and Middle East markets. And so the question I have is, where are these deployments? And so I sort of dug into it. And these are claims that Huawei is making. But what they're claiming is that from a, from a 5G solutions perspective, they're focused on 20 different industries. They've come up with the term 5G to be kind of clever. And as I kind of read through this, what I found were a lot of smart city deployments. Utilities, they have a design on wanting to digitize the ability for um, their technology to be integrated into like the power business and grid management and that sort of thing. They're calling it Huawei Digital Power. They're talking about the green aspects of their designs and, and that sort of thing from an energy uh, efficiency perspective and carbon neutrality. And, you know, I just find it interesting that uh, that they're winning deals when in the rest of the world they're getting shut out of deals over security concerns and and that sort of thing. So and then what's also interesting too, they're reporting that their enterprise cloud business is growing. They're saying that they now offer over 220 services, 19 data centers and over 200 local partner uh partners and uh have over 80 marketplace offerings. And I'm not sure if that was a statement as I read into the into the article, if that's the Middle East or if that's in general, it's probably a broader statement, but does this surprise you that that Huawei is reporting that they're they're having success in the Middle East?
1: I actually think the Middle East is a is a very strong market for them. Yeah. Um I think when you look at where Huawei has been successful in the past, I think they've been very successful in the Middle East. Yeah. Um, and I think that when you look at um some of the requirements that some of these governments will put on network infrastructure, um I think Huawei might be a good fit for those companies. Mm
0: -hmm. And
1: I I think that a lot of these countries like the UAE um, and other Middle Eastern countries, I don't think they care as much about whether or not um, they're being spied on by, you know, the Chinese government are using that as an excuse, I think. Right. Um, So I think they're just more comfortable using Huawei and they still think Huawei has, has good products that fit what they need. Um, And obviously, you know, Huawei isn't as capable today as they were a few years ago in terms of delivering some solutions. So they might not be, you know, uh, top to bottom Huawei anymore, but they're going to use Huawei where they can and where they think it makes sense. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You know, there's no doubt Huawei has invested just a tremendous percentage of its overall revenue back in R&D. At one point, it was 20 to 25 percent. That, that certainly they've had to you know, probably adjust that just given the current economic situation, their loss of business in Europe and certainly the rip and replace that's going on in the US. But uh, it's interesting and we'll continue to monitor it. My thought was that as they, as they moved out of uh, service provider, that they would double down on an enterprise business that was quite a bit smaller relative to the other business units and their, their smartphone device business and in their uh, cellular infrastructure business. But time will tell, but we'll keep we'll keep our eyes open and, and uh, our ears open there. But let's move to your third and final topic this week. And you wanna talk about Samsung and Apple and uh, some speed test results.
1: Yeah, so um, I was looking at a story from Sasha Sagan over at PC Mag, And he reported that um, using some of Ookla's speed test Results, which are similar to the results that we saw from T-Mobile, yeah. um, also an UCLA report, um, they found that uh, the Galaxy S22 Ultra is by far and away the fastest smartphone uh, on all cellular networks. Um, and it kind of corroborates what I've seen on, on my devices as well as what he's seen on his. Mm-hmm. Um, the interesting thing is, is that This S22 Ultra is using a uh, Qualcomm X65 modem, which is inside Mm -hmm. of the Snapdragon uh, 8 Gen 1, while the iPhone 13 still uses an X60 modem, uh, which is what the iPhone 13 has. And because of that, um, there's a pretty interesting speed gap, whereas um, the the S22 Ultra is getting about 116 megabits per second, Mm
0: -hmm. while
1: the iPhone 13 Pro Max gets about a hundred. And um, the interesting part is uh, the iPhone 13 Pro Max gets about the same speed as Samsung's Galaxy Z Fold 3, which has the exact same modem from last year. So um, clearly the Qualcomm modems are the leaders uh, in the space and the latest modems do perform considerably well Mm -hmm. uh, compared to last year's modems. But um, you know, Samsung kind of rules the roost uh, on the device side because they are using um, the fastest possible uh, chipsets from Qualcomm, and it'll be interesting to see if we can get that data with some Exynos chips with their modems as well. Uh, mm-hmm. But unfortunately, I don't think that data is available because uh, the Exynos uh, isn't available in the North American market, as far as I know. So. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we'll have to look at those that data maybe potentially globally and see how the S22 Ultra performs in countries where uh, they do have mid-band and uh, they do use Exynos chipsets. But overall, you know, yeah. Samsung continues to keep its leadership. And what's really funny is um, the S21 Ultra from last year also outperformed the 13 Pro Max uh, and the iPhone 13 Pro. So Samsung kind of, both current and last generation continues to maintain its leadership on on five g speeds.
0: They're doing beautiful devices. I have a couple demos that I'm playing with right now that have been given to me by a couple of different operators and they're you know the fit and finish is beautiful the the performance is you know it's amazing and they continue to make just a really solid product. so I'm not surprised to you know, to hear what you had to say there on your third topic. But it, hey, buddy, it's been another great podcast this week. Why don't you take us home? Absolutely.
1: We hope our viewers and listeners found this week's topics interesting. If anyone out there would like to provide insight on a specific 5G topic for a future podcast, please reach out to us on social media. Will is at Willtown Tech and I'm at On Shell Sog. We hope you have a great weekend and please tune again next week.